Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Crucial Conversations. I'm Peter. And I'm Kevin. And we're continuing our series on Christology, and we're going to talk about Philippians 2 today. So, I hmm. like Philippians 2. Yeah. I'm going to start reading it. You're giving me weird looks, Kevin. Are we okay? I'm making sure that my audio is okay. <laughs> I thought it was funny that you didn't go with the theological are we okay answer. You went with an actual practical other answer okay read philippians yeah we're reading philippians we're not okay so let's let's get right down to it this is christology and christology according to philippians and this is another weird verse kevin i'm gonna set it up that way because yeah it's another verse where it's like wait what okay so i'm gonna start philippians 2 in verse 4 then we'll kind of get into it let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I wanted to start there because we did this in our morning prayer time with my kids. And I read that verse twice. Because <laughs> <laughs> they're kids. Mm-hmm. Let uh, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, so Kevin, here's my question for us to start off with. Kind of sounds like as we're reading that Jesus was divine in some way. He humbles himself and basically gives up his divinity, and now he's just a man. I mean, if if I'm going with like an apparent plain reading of this text, and we're talking about the person of Jesus Christ here, that's kind of what I get from this. I mean, you got emptied himself was in the form of God. I don't know. This could go either way because the form of God, there's so many confusing phrases here that you could take in different directions. It's just really, it seems like a really weird way to talk about Jesus and who he is. Okay. (laughs) That's because it's really confusing to talk about Jesus and who he is. Um, so this is this that is doesn't really, help me any though. Help me. So this is one of the foundational passages for our Christology. Um, which wait, is, wait. This confusing passage is yes. one of the foundational passages. This is one of the foundational passages. That also doesn't make any sense. Isn't that fun? <laughs> um, some call this the the Christ hymn. Um, this is um, if you mm. look at your translations, some translations set this off as poetry. Oh, and. Some people believe this is actually a hymn that was sung by the early church or that Paul was either quoting or referring to or teaching. But this is often known as a Christ hymn, and it's full of short phrases that describe Jesus, much like our Apostles' Creed. Hmm. So the, the reason this seems odd or confusing sometimes is because this brief portion of scripture does hold within it the truth that Jesus as being one person 
has two natures, divine and human. And what you see here is not an explanation of those two things, but actually an observation of them. Hmm. So it's not explaining how he has two natures. It's simply observing Ah. that he has two natures. Okay. And so it starts off by this idea that he was in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? So So we're talking about God the Father? We're talking about divinity. Okay. So there's a lot of issue about what the referent God is supposed to engender in our minds. So when we say God, what are we supposed to think of? Um, that's a whole other discussion. But yeah, let's just, asked, let's is, just is leave it... it as divine. Okay. Being part of the Godhead, even, if you want to say it that way. So he is in the form of God. He is divine being. But that was not what he was going after when he was incarnate. So when he became man, it wasn't with the goal of being like God? Right. It was the goal of saving. I guess I never thought of him becoming man as an attempt to be like God in the first place. So I'm kind of like, well, why is that the argument? I wasn't asking that question. Because Who who was asking that question? Because what, what Paul is getting at is... What is the attitude of Christ? What is the goal of Christ? See, it's not for him to revel in his divinity. Ah. It's for him to save humanity. And the craziness of this is that the way he does it is by becoming man. So it's not a matter of Look, I'm God. I'm amazing. I'm now going to become a man. And oh, look, I'm now God again. I'm even more amazing than I was before. It has nothing to do with that, really. It's Right, that's kind of what I'm... Yeah, so, so it's really the movement of we walk around thinking the best thing I can do is preserve myself and further myself and build myself up, look out for number one, love myself, and then if my bucket's full, then maybe I can love you some. Mm-hmm. But Paul is actually saying, when you look at Christ, he didn't do that. Well, that was not his approach. He didn't say, I'm going to make sure my divinity is the most important thing you know about me. No, he doesn't. He empties himself. He becomes nothing. Uh, he, he, he gives it all up and becomes a man. But then when he becomes a man, he doesn't become the ubermensch, the superman, right? He becomes a, a servant, a slave, a somebody who's even obedient to death, even death on a cross. So even when so, he becomes a man, he's not even the best version no, of a man. It's, it's, and the scriptures we would shockingly say, it, yeah. there's nothing about him that would draw us to him. He wasn't, you know, when you look at King Saul in the Old Testament, he was literally head and shoulders above everybody else. That's why he chose him as king, because he's a big, strong dude. Mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't have those characteristics. He, he doesn't become man in such a way that we all marvel at his humanity. As a matter of fact, what we marvel at is his humility. This reminds me of a conversation we had a couple of years ago about the account of Zacchaeus <laughs> and, and, and wondering, was it actually that Zacchaeus was so short he had to climb the tree to see Jesus? Right. Or was it that Jesus was so short 
that Zacchaeus, being a normal-sized human being, had to climb the tree in order to see Jesus over the crowd because Jesus was short. I yeah. don't remember where, where I don't remember where we ended up on that right. one, but, but if just that's an, just a silly thought see, experiment, but it's but, an interesting idea. Is how do you picture Jesus in your head? Is he six four, muscular, perfectly combed hair, beautiful blue eyes, good looking dude? You know, yeah. Or is he short, maybe not so good looking? You know, maybe not perfectly combed hair, little rough around the edges, rough around the edges, threadbare maybe. You know, maybe not the best looking guy in the room. What do you do with that? What do you do with a God in flesh that isn't the ideal man? Mm. Well, that's kind of where Philippians gets us. Is that he humbled himself even to being a servant to a form of death that was despicable, that was despised. Mm. Not just in Roman times, but even the Old Testament hanging on a tree was... A curse. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. Cursed is one. Where's that from? I know the reference, which is, but which is exactly I know the what verse. Galatians I, three cites. Right? Ah, okay. It goes back and it says, "Look, look." In the Old Testament, it said that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So this is Paul, same argu- same author as Philippians, when he writes Galatians three. This is part of his argument for the Christology in Galatians three, is that Jesus actually becomes a curse, and this is. Part of Christology, which is why we don't start with the discussions of the qualities of God and then try to figure out how Jesus works into that. Yeah, we're definitely not starting with glory here. Right. Because a potentially short, somewhat ugly man, not glory. Not glory. (laughs) There's no glory there. Well, naked guy hanging on a cross, (laughs) bleeding. Yeah, that too. You know, unable to carry his own cross, not glory. Mm-hmm. Um, laughed at, literally laughed at by Spat his peers. Upon, beaten, all of um, that. This is not glory. Um, despicable, naked, shamed. This is not glory. All of his friends abandoning him. All of them. Yeah. But this is what Paul says: is he did that in order to save. This should be our attitude too, and that's really the the thrust of this in Philippians: is look what. God did to save us. Look what Jesus did to save. He became a servant. Hmm. And so Christology then is not from the point of view of a philosophical stance on who God is and who man is and how do you smush the two together. No. Christology looks at what Jesus did in order to save and say, and, and, it, and Christology says, when the scriptures talk about Jesus saving, what kind of language does it use? And what we find is it uses remarkable language, like Jesus is God and dies. We talked about that in previous <laughs> episodes, right? Yeah, yeah. The blood of God. How does God have blood? And, and so what happens is Christology grows from these verses that seem to be contradictory. They crucified the Lord of glory. Well, you can't do that. That's not possible. Mm-hmm. So this drives our Christology then. How do we talk about a person, because he certainly is a person, and yet he has divine qualities, and yet he has human qualities? How do we talk about that? And that's really the, the impetus for the church developing the language you use to talk about Jesus. One person, two natures. 
and and it doesn't grow from <laughs> we're going to start with God and we're going to start with humanity and try to smoosh them together and how to reconcile these two. No, it actually starts with scripture passages that, like you said when you read this, they seem weird. <laughs> yeah. When you read them, you kind of go, wait, does that really say what I just, I think it says? Because it doesn't make any sense. Because it doesn't fit with the thing it said just right before it. Right. And that's really where Christology grows from is these passages that set before us truths of who Jesus is and what he did, but don't necessarily fit with our presuppositions to what God is or even what man is. And so in Philippians, we have a God, or we have God, who empties himself. That's actually the right translation. Okay. Now, my translation actually doesn't have that. It changed it. And, and it's, it's interesting that it, it literally changes, because you're reading the ESV. I was going to say, I, I thought you were reading the ESV also. I also have the ESV. I'm going to change back to it because my pages got turned. But it says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Hmm. Instead of emptied himself. And the funny thing is the note says, literally, quote, emptied himself. And so the Greek word there is, for the Greek Greek word for emptied is kenosis, or, you know, the Greek, the verb form. But this is what's no, called... No, in fact, I don't know. I'll well, trust you on that. Okay, trust me on that. It's, <laughs> it's kenoticism is the teaching that when Jesus became human, he literally emptied himself of his divinity, so he was no longer divine. And this is one of the early heresies of the church, is kenoticism, this idea that Jesus actually got rid of his divinity for a time. Yeah, and it, it kind of sounds like And that. you can see where it gets it, yeah. right? But the problem is that doesn't work, because that's not the testimony of the rest of Scripture. So it doesn't mean Paul's wrong here. What it means is all the Scripture works together, Scripture interprets Scripture, to help us get a, a clear picture, or not necessarily clear, but a fuller picture of what Paul is describing. And this is actually then what's codified in our teaching of the states of humiliation and exaltation, is that in the state of humiliation, Jesus didn't get rid of his divine nature, but he voluntarily restrained from the full use of his divine nature. So he still had it, Mm -hmm. but he voluntarily, meaning he willed it, to not always use his divine nature to its fullest degree. So we have Jesus saying weird things like, I don't know, (laughs) <laughs> people say so Jesus when's the second coming and Jesus goes only the father knows that I don't know that yeah how could he not know he's God <laughs> but this is his willing voluntarily voluntary restraint of the full use of his divinity so in his divine nature is he omniscient yes in the state of humiliation is he fully using that omniscience no no he's voluntarily saying I'm not going to know certain Okay, I've actually encountered, I, I'm, I guess it's a weird version of this this heresy, because um, I think people might be wondering, okay, other than explaining this text, why does this matter? I think I, I encountered this in a conversation with a friend years ago. Uh, this individual follows Bill Johnson, who is a pastor out at Bethel Church, Redding, California. Uh, they have the School of Supernatural Ministry. They're quite famous for... Um, Miracles, healings, all that kind of stuff. Like, that's their thing. 
But one of the things that Bill was teaching, and I, I watched a video of him doing this, so it wasn't just me taking my friend's word. It's actually, here's the video where mm-hmm. he teaches this, is that when Jesus was here on earth, and this is the basis for their theology of miracles and, and all that. Uh, when Jesus was here on earth, he never used his divine power. Now, I don't remember if they went so far as to say he got rid of it entirely, it was right. no longer existent, but they did say he never used mm-hmm. his own power, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. Every time he did a miracle, mm-hmm. it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So the third person of the Trinity was actually acting through him. Mm-hmm. Therefore, and this is what they do with that, therefore, we as Christians have mm-hmm. access to that same Holy Spirit that same power. We don't have the divine nature of Jesus in us, but we do have the same Holy Spirit, same access to that same power. Therefore, we can do the same things Jesus did because we actually have that same power within us. And that's kind of the foundation that they build to then go from there. And you look at that, you're like, okay, if that's actually what scripture says and what it teaches, that totally makes sense. I should be able to raise the dead and do these miracles on command using the power of the Holy Spirit. And and yet I I don't and that seems to be missing something. Well it again it goes back to the beginning of the conversation, which is what is the goal of Christology? What is the goal of Jesus having two natures, the two natures in Christ? What is the goal of how we discuss all this? It's not so that I can do special effects tricks. It's not so I can have powers. Or even legitimate miracles. It's not for me to do that. It's not for me to do anything. It's simply for, for this is what God did to accomplish our salvation. And quickly, when you say, well, this teaching allows me to teach this, and it's not about God and, and what he does in Christ to save us, you're kind of going, that's, that's not the point of Jesus. Jesus didn't come to give us the answer on how to do cool stuff. He just didn't. He didn't come to teach us how to heal people. He didn't come to teach us how to raise the dead. He didn't come to teach us how to whatever, fill in the blank, walk on <laughs> what, water. Whatever the current right, uh, walk on water miracle or move of the mountains, day is. Yeah. Right? He didn't teach us those things. He he came, <laughs> and, and this might be a tough pill to swallow. He came to save you. That's what he came to do. Hmm. He came to bring the kingdom of God to earth. He came to say, when God reigns, this is what happens. And the most important thing that happens is that God and sinners are reconciled. And the way that happens is through the death and the resurrection of the Son of God. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. Mm-hmm. It's not, therefore, I have the same, I can tap into the same powers as Jesus. It's not, Jesus came so that I can be more godlike in my ability to raise the dead or heal the sick or whatever, 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 speak in tongues or whatever. That's not the point. And if those things happen, who cares? <laughs> That's If God wants to use those things, as he seemed to do in the early church, the apostolic age, you read the book of Acts, and crazy stuff was going on, right? Mm-hmm. We read today in chapel in Acts 19, where if a handkerchief touched Paul's skin, it had healing powers. Yeah, it could then go heal people. <laughs> That's insane. That's crazy, Right. So, so I shouldn't go stock up on handkerchiefs? Well, if you if you know the Apostle Paul, you might want to. And, oh, okay. then, and then rub him on his skin a lot. <laughs> um, but that's, see, that's a little creepy now. Exactly. And that's exactly <laughs> the point, is that that doesn't actually make any sense. So 
we're not saying God can't work through people by the Holy Spirit, which he does miracles or mm-hmm. whatever. Whatever. He God does what has. he wants to do. We, yeah. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is that in Christ, God is reconciling the world unto himself. And the amazing thing is there's there's one person of Jesus. He has two natures, divine and human. And in this passage that Paul is getting at is that when Jesus lived among us as the God-man, he did it in humility, mm. in utter humility and as a slave, as a servant of all. And and this isn't hard for us to understand when you read the Synoptic Gospels, when we hear the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, this is Mark 10, 45. That's, that's really the key of Mark, right? Is that Jesus had the right to walk into every room and say, everyone on their knees, serve me. He did. And he had the power to do that. He could have, yeah, absolutely. He's the yep. almighty God. But he chooses, and that's why we say voluntarily, he chooses to not use his divine nature to his fullest degree and to come a, become a, a humble human servant. Hmm. Okay, now, let's be clear. The incarnation is not the same thing as a state of humiliation because Jesus is now in the state of exaltation, oh, yet still incarnate. still incarnate. Okay. Okay, yeah. so he can't equate the the humiliation, the state of humiliation with the incarnation. However, the incarnation is when we start discussing the state of humiliation. Okay. Does that make sense? Kind of? Kind of, yeah, because it, <clears throat> it, you can say that's when the state of humiliation began. Right. But you can't say that's the essence of the state of humiliation. You can't equate the two of them. Yeah. That's right. So they could have the same starting point if you want to say that, mm-hmm. which that's kind of putting too fine a point on things sometimes. Well, we're kind but of stuck in time, so I'm going to use there. time because that's... So you can stuck. say that. I'm stuck there. <laughs> but I just I just want to make sure as, as our listeners and as we think this through that we're not equating humiliation with incarnation. Some people do that. When that gets to be a real problem, then when he is exalted... And right? still incarnate. And still incarnate. Yeah. So what do you do with the physical resurrection? And that's why, again, as, as you think this through, there are ramifications for these things. So if you say the incarnation is the state of humiliation, then do you have a physically resurrected Jesus? Well, the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel, all the Gospels that have resurrection appearances are very clear that he is physically resurrected. He's eating. He's... He's... He's walking through things surprisingly when he shouldn't be able to because he, he's got a body. He, he eats several times. Um, the, the witness of the disciples as they're looking at a man mm-hmm. that has arms and legs and flesh and, and holes where the nails used to be, all he that kind of stuff. He sits on a beach, makes a fire, right. and cooks a meal. Yeah, so these kind are all physical very thing. <laughs> physical things. So we, we, we affirm that he's in the state of exaltation after his resurrection. Mm-hmm. Right, but he's still incarnate, and now that he's at the right hand of God, he's still incarnate. So we cannot equate incarnation with humili- humiliation. Well, when you said to think of the ramifications, I, I think that's an important. Th- I think that's what I was doing when I had this conversation with my friend, and then when I looked up Bill Johnson and listened yeah. to it, <clears throat> the ramification of believing in that way is that your focus becomes, okay, how do I get this power? How do I make sure I'm doing it right? How do I make sure my Christian life 
is exemplified by these signs and wonders, because if that's what I'm supposed to be doing, I need to be pursuing that. And and then the death proclaiming the death and resurrection of Christ at best becomes a side thing, if it even gets or, mentioned at all. Or if you read what we read in Philippians 2, you're focused on what you're doing. Yeah. Paul's saying, don't do that. Become a <laughs> slave to everyone. You should outslave everyone. That's your goal. I am going to be the most despicable servant of all. That's your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. See, and what we do is say, our attitude is the same as Christ Jesus, who did cool stuff, therefore I should do cool stuff. <laughs> no, 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 no. You're you're missing the point. Well, and if you properly think about a a slave or a servant, one of the most common characteristics is that they aren't noticed. Right. That, I mean, that, I think that's part of this, is that the servant or the slave, when they're doing their job as they're supposed to be doing it, you don't actually notice that they're doing it. The you, other, don't, you don't see them. The other thing, and this is, this is you, my favorite definition. You see definition. the work that they've done, but right. you don't see them. I think that's a good analogy here. That's in, a nice... I think that, it also helps to think of a slave as someone who does not have the right to their own will. Mm, yeah. A slave does what they're told, and they don't have the right to question it. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that because a slave does not have the right to their own will. They only do the will of their master. And like you said, and therefore, they're not the ones that are noticed. It's the work they're doing that you see because it's actually the master's work mm-hmm. that the slave is doing. Yeah, and And this is huge for us as Americans as we are all about our will and our rights and my individual freedom and all this kind of stuff. And and Paul says, uh-uh, <laughs> no. That is actually being enslaved to sin. You serve a different master now. Mm-hmm. You don't serve the master, the master of self. You serve the master of Christ. That's your master. And his will is that we do the will of the Father. And the will of the Father is to love God with our whole heart, and to love our neighbor. Mm-hmm. That's the will of the Father. You don't have a right to exert your own will. This, As I'm thinking through this analogy, it's, it's kind of counterproductive to be doing this on a public podcast that we've named Crucial Conversation and that we're putting out there for people to, to notice and see because, Kevin, if we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, people will hear the gospel proclaimed here and then forget that it was us that did it. Yeah, I mean... the and We just dropped something on the floor. And they'll forget. They'll, they'll be like, well, yeah, I heard the gospel. It was amazing. God worked through it. I don't remember who did it. And that would actually be good. Well, that's the That's goal. actually success. Yeah. Which and, is ironic, because we're on a public podcast that we want people to listen to. <laughs> but we, we don't, at least I don't, have any... I don't have any desire for anyone to know who I am. It's simply the good news of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the reality, like Christology, what? how does it help anybody to discuss Christology? Well, it helps because it's about what God has done to save you and what God has done to save your neighbor. And it really digs down to when we talk about what undergirds our life? What was the foundation of who we are? It really is what God has done for us in Christ, mm-hmm. which means we want to know that fully. 
and Christology is the best way to dig into that. Yeah. Because Christ, as, as the person Christ, as the person Jesus Christ, God and man in one person, he's the one that did it. He's the one in whom we trust. He is the judge of the end times. That, that's kind of it. You you need to know him. <laughs> you need to trust in him. And if you want to know who the Father it, it is, it kind of is all about Jesus. It kind of is as all we about keep Jesus. Saying, yeah, that's, that's a thing. <laughs> and, and which means it's necessarily not about me, right? Not only in a podcast, but also in my daily life. It is necessarily not about me. Mm-hmm. The problem is the first thing I think when they wake up in the morning is how I feel. <laughs> how did I sleep? What do I have to do today? Am I in a good mood or a bad mood? See, and, and right away, my concupiscence just beats me up. And it's like, my concupiscence is screaming, are you out of your mind? It is all about you. <laughs> Even your faith is all about your faith, what you believe, you going to heaven, you being in a relationship with Jesus. And see, or as we've been talking about your power right, to do your these power miracles. To do things. Yeah, I mean, you can read the Bible and find a way you can be cool by doing the stuff that Jesus did. It's like, wait, that that is just my concupiscence. That's my original sin saying, make it about you. And it's the opposite of what Paul is saying in this the passage. Exact opposite. Exact opposite. Yeah. Exact opposite. So we haven't talked about the end of this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. So we've talked about the humiliation. Mm-hmm. We started talking about the exaltation. Mm-hmm. We had a question at one point. I don't remember if we answered, when does the exaltation happen? Well, we talked what about... Is, how, well, how does this verse... Let's start with this verse. How does this verse help us get to that? We talked about it in terms of the creed. How, okay. you know, after he descend or after he's buried, he descends into hell. And that's the beginning of the exaltation okay. in the creed. Yeah. So... You kind of want to think that after the burial, you begin talking about the state of exaltation, that he he goes, he descends to hell to proclaim victory. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he will return as judge. Those are all the things in the state of exaltation. So not that you want to say there are steps in the state of exaltation, but those are all the things that we talk about within the state of exaltation. Mm-hmm. So if you want to look at kind of a timeline you look at, you know, Easter morning is the first time we perceive the state of exaltation. Now the descent into hell happened before that, obviously. Mm-hmm. We don't know exactly when, but sometime before that. Um, so so Jesus is now, for us, all that really matters is for us, he's in the state of exaltation, which which does have implications for and us. Somewhere he's in paradise with the thief on the cross at the yeah, same time. Yeah, And Uh-oh. This is getting confusing, Kevin. Well, now we're in the state of exaltation, so <laughs> there's a lot of things that are becoming very confusing, because where is he? Uh. Hey, right? And and we don't have time to, to do this on this that's, podcast. That's the next, we'll, that, that might be the yeah, next episode. Or next several episodes. <laughs> yeah. But this is some of the, the issue with Christology, is if he's in a state of exaltation and incarnate, is he located only at the Father's right hand? Or is he now omnipresent? And if he's omnipresent, which means he's everywhere, mm-hmm. is he physically omnipresent? Which is something physical people can't really do. Right. Which creates a whole other problem in Christology. Yeah. Or, so what or raises that, another question, I should so say. So what does that mean? And then what does that mean with how the two natures interplay? Do the 
do the qualities of human nature trump the qualities of divine nature or do the, the qualities of the divine nature become qualities of the human nature? So now we're getting into that... what's called what the three genera. Right. That's one way to say Is it. That... The the gainuses, the gainuses, the genera, the genera. <laughs> they get into the ecclesiastical Latin. We're yeah, Latin. Latin stuff. So we'll we're, we are going to have to cover yeah, that as we well. We, that we've planned on doing that, but right. Apparently, we're working but, our way into it now. But that's the point: is is the states of humiliation and exaltation are one of the ways to start talking about this. How the two natures work in the person, how they interact with each other. Yeah. What is the goal of the two natures? Those are all the things that theologians have tried to explain or tried to reflect what scripture teaches through the genera, through the three different gainuses, if you want to say it that way. Mm-hmm. But as we talk about Christ, it's it's one thing to establish there's one person with two natures. And the next question is, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and the honest answer is... And that's where the Latin phrases yeah, come Yeah, and you start making yeah. up Latin phrases, because that Latin is basically short for, I don't know. But we do know what Scripture <laughs> if says. The, if the Latin doesn't work, we can switch to German. They've got yeah. even longer phrases that mean, I don't know. Yeah, and they all end up saying it sounding the same eventually. <laughs> but what happens is, is theologians have, again, starting with what Scripture has said, tried to reflect that in these phrases say, oh, well, the human nature and the divine nature, whatever Jesus does as a person, he does with both natures. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? That means that you can't say the divine nature is taking a break while he's starving to death in the wilderness because the divine nature can't get hungry. So when he says he's hungry after 40 days of not eating in Matthew, which is one of my favorite verses, he didn't <laughs> eat for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Really? Well, duh. <laughs> Except for if you're thinking he's God, then you're like, well, really? God gets hungry? Yeah. And so what happens is we we don't look at that verse and say, oh, the divine nature left him for 40 days so he could get hungry. No, we simply say that whatever Jesus does as a person, he does according to both na- with, with both natures, but we assign it to the nature that we see. So we say according to okay. the human nature. So See, Jesus we, we've got mentioned hungry. that a couple times. Right. We're gonna have to dig into that deeper because it's and that's, still how do you remember yeah. that? <laughs> how do you how do you dig through this? And but what happens is you start recognizing that these phrases are important because they avoid saying things you don't want to say. So our theological nitpicking, if I can use that phrase, mm-hmm. actually matters, especially when it comes to Christology. And especially who Jesus is and what he's done. And what, what you'll find, the more you read theology, the more you discuss theology, is there's, there are certain things you can kind of be loosey-goosey on and kind of like, yeah, whatever word works. Then there are certain things that everyone's like, no, <laughs> you can't say that. You have to say it this way. And Also, the it must is, be in Latin because any yeah, other language gets it wrong. That's right. <laughs> but, but again, when we went to the Athanasian Creed, we talked about this. The Athanasian Creed was written to define terms and to say, when you talk about Trinity, use these terms. When you talk about the incarnation of Jesus, use these terms. Why? Because these terms, we understand what they mean, but more importantly, we understand what we are not saying by mm. saying these terms. And remember, the Athanasian Creed. So, the Father is Almighty, the Son is Almighty, the Spirit is Almighty. So, are we saying there are three Almighties? Nope. Nope. There's one Almighty. There's one Almighty. Yeah. Right? And they say, oh, well then, is the Father eternal? Yeah. Is the Son eternal? Yep. Is the Holy Spirit eternal? Yep. So there are three eternals? <laughs> no. Right? Well, why? Because remember, there's one substance. 
you don't divide it. But there are three persons, and you don't confuse them. So is the Father the Son? No. Is the Son the Spirit? No. Did the Father die for you on a cross? No. Right? So yeah. it's, see, the point is, I know we've done this before, but the point is, when you start realizing that the terms are important because they express the theology that the scriptures teach us, it's not nitpicking, it's confessing. Okay, so since we're talking about definitions, we started this passage with the word God being used. Mm-hmm. And you had made the statement of, let's not get confused by our misconceptions of that. Mm-hmm. We kind of defined this use of God as, well, divine, mm-hmm. his divinity being divine. Mm-hmm. In our final verses here, it seems like God is being used a little bit differently because now God is doing something. So here, verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And then at the very end we have, To the glory of God the Father. So we have this term being further defined. So is Paul using the term God the same in both of these? And then how does that impact our Christology? See, that's exactly the point, is... Now you're reading the text and saying, instead of me coming to the text and saying, I'm going to define this word this way, you're actually reading through the passage and saying, oh, Paul lets us know how he's using this word. And then the question is, is he using the word the same at the beginning of the passage as he is at the end of the passage? Because biblical writers are able to use a word in two different ways in the same passage, <laughs> just like we do all that the time. That doesn't help me understand it, though, Kevin. Right, but we do it all the time when we talk. They can do it all the time when they write. Yeah. So in this passage... What happens is is you actually, in this passage, Paul, at the end, we can tell for sure that he is re- using God to refer to the person of the Father, because he says it. And we also know from this passage that when he says, therefore God has given him, meaning Jesus, the name is of every name. Well, that's not Jesus. He doesn't give himself a name. So we know it's not the second person of the Trinity. It's either the first or the third or both. And so then, and this is exactly how you do it, is you keep reading and you keep questioning, what are we saying when we say God? Then you go back and you say, okay, now, Jesus is equal with the Father, but he does not consider that equality with with God something to be grasped. Does that work theologically? Is Jesus equal to the Father? Yes. Yeah. So so can can you read this as saying he was equal with the Father? Yes. Can you read it saying he was in the same form as the Father? No, definitely See, not. See, now you start saying, well, <laughs> you know, what exactly, how narrowly do we want to define these words? And that's the point, is you you want to make sure that as you read, you keep reading and saying, okay, my presupposition is, you, is to read the word theos, which is the word here for God, and always say Father, right? Like 95% of the time it means Father. Yeah. Therefore, I'm going to say Father all the yeah. time. <laughs> well, he didn't say Father. He said God. Let's Let's let it be and see what happens. And the fact that he says God the Father at the end helps us go back yeah. and say now maybe this That's is the best reading. Hold right. on. Paul Let's... is teaching us how to read Paul. Ah. See, and this is what we want to do. We want to let the scriptures teach us how to read them. Yeah, this this we're ba- this is scripture interprets scripture. I mean, it's the most basic hermeneutic interpretive principle. And when you do that, you will find that the scriptures are clear that this incarnation business, that there's one person in two natures, it's all done so that God would save you, a mm. sinner. That in Christ, God forgives all of your sins. And that is the crucial conversation.
We'll see you guys next time. Thanks.